Welcome back to another episode of the Naval History Podcast at Preble Hall. David Gombert served as Acting Director of National Intelligence from 2003 to 2004. David Gombert was the Senior Advisor for National Security and Defense to the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq that followed the ousted Ba'athist regime. From 1975 to 1983, he held numerous positions at the U.S. Department of State, serving as Deputy to the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Deputy Director of the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs, and Special Assistant to former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. He was appointed Special Assistant to President George Herbert Walker Bush, and he is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy, class of 1967. David, welcome back. It's great to see you again. Thank you. The... um, we had chatted before about the an interesting organization called the CNO's Executive Panel, the Chief of Naval Operations Executive Panel, and it's a, uh, something you served on about a decade ago. So I thought I'd just discuss what what is the Executive Panel for those who are sort of outside the Beltway. Well, the uh, CNO's Executive Panel is a group of, let's call them informed outsiders, with uh, a mandate for uh, independent uh, thinking and advice to the uh, chief of naval operations um, with a small staff within the Navy, within uh, um, the CNO's office, to support it. Um, How it functions and how well it functions really depends on the attitude of the CNO about his executive panel, and that has tended to vary over the years. Uh, I joined the CNO's executive panel when Jay Johnson was CNO. Forgive me, I can't remember the year, but certainly was in the 90s. Um, And then after Jay, it was Vern Clark, Mike Mullen went on to become the chairman, uh, and Gary Ruffhead. I can't explain how effective, how active the CNO's executive panel is today. I just don't know. But I can talk about what its history was mm-hmm. back uh, a decade ago. What you, you mentioned these are informed thinkers. Tell us about the backgrounds of some of the people who might have served on the executive panel. Right. <clears throat> no retired flag officers that I recall. I don't think that they are proscribed from serving, but the idea is to get uh, more of a a, a non-uniformed naval perspective. Um, I would say that half of the members of the executive panel at any moment have had government experience either in policymaking or in acquisition. Uh, Of those, probably half within the Defense Department and the others scattered around the intelligence community or the State Department. Uh, That leaves half of the panel. A panel typically is 20 to 25 people. Uh, The other half would be uh, business executives, perhaps with defense business experience, perhaps not. Uh, academics, and then there was always one or two just plain old interesting people. Um, so it's it's quite diverse by intention. It's very interesting to be on the panel, particularly because of its diversity. Some people are better informed on how the Navy functions than others are, 
But of course, there's always the danger that those who have been so close to the military and the Navy in particular would have a bit of a forest and trees problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's why it's important to complement those with lots of naval experience with those who don't have it and have uh, maybe more exposure to the world at large. Who were some of the people that you served on the executive panel with during your tenure? Yeah. Um, Hal Sonnenfeld, uh, uh, often called, uh, the late Hal Sonnenfeld, often called Kissinger's Kissinger. Um, global strategist had been uh, Kissinger's uh, counsel on the, uh, at the State Department and on the NSC staff. Um, helped to shape American strategy, particularly as it related to nuclear weapons and arms control at the heart of the Cold War. Um, at the other end, Irv Blickstein, uh, a civilian with tons of experience uh, with OPNAV uh, as a civilian, uh, knowledgeable, as knowledgeable as anyone I know in or out of the Navy in how things really get done. Um, ben Huberman had been a naval officer, but he was mainly a scientist, had served as the deputy uh, science advisor to one or two presidents and brought a, uh, a strong science and technology background. Uh, Larry Caviola, who also chaired the panel for uh, several years, had experience as an academy graduate, for that matter, and taught a little bit here. Um, a lot of experience on uh, the Hill, on naval strategy, uh, but also on the sort of the corporate angle and international uh, policy angle. I, I think that gives you a pretty good mm -hmm. cross-section. How are people selected for this? Is this dependent on uh, if there's an availability that the current CNO will already know who they want, or is there any was there any kind of application process for this? No, there was no application project uh, um, process. In my case, the vice CNO came to me. I was an executive at the Rand Corporation then, which certainly doesn't preclude being on the CNO's executive panel. This, it's a collateral duty for most people. Uh, in fact, I don't know of anybody whose sole activity was th to be on the panel. Um, and I think that's a good thing. But I was approached by the, uh, the, the vice CNO and asked whether I would like to be on the panel and that Jay Johnson would like me to join. So I said, fine. But I think it, it just depends on happenstance, uh, but there's no application mm -hmm. process. This was unclassified work or classified work that the, the executive panel would do? It could be both. How often would you meet? We would meet monthly. Would they then, uh, in order to get some of these ideas out, would the CNO then uh, put out a, um, a topic for discussion, or how would, how would your discussions evolve? Uh, Sometimes we would originate the idea and run the idea or the issue by, if not the CNO, the, the CNO staff to be sure that there was receptivity to us looking at that issue. 
Uh, sometimes it came directly from the CNO or from those who had a, a good idea what would be useful to the CNO. I don't recall a single instance where the panel thought it was a good idea to look at something and the CNO said, no, please don't. Um, but uh, again, it varies so much by CNO, but for the most part, uh, CNOs were very receptive to the panel's view of what issues ought to be considered and not hesitant to say, I'd like you to look at this or that. Can you discuss some of the unclassified topics that, that were considered during your time? Sure. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll do that. I thought you might ask that. I'll do that in a way that gives you some sense of the richness and, and scope of the, of the work. But by the way, I should insert here, when I say work, it's, it, it is at several levels. First of all, typically a member of the staff, these are uniformed officers, um, will support an activity, maybe do some research or whatever, and it usually involves a subset of the panel to develop uh, options and a particular recommendation, and then it would be um, presented to the panel before presented to the CNO. Um, so, um, in no particular order, chronologically or of, of priority, um, Larry Caviola and I led study early on in Vern Clark's uh, tenure as CNO. Forgive me for not recalling the years. That would have been early 2000s. Early probably. 2000s, yeah. yeah. On the implications of data networking for naval operations. Not so much cybersecurity. We were not at that point quite yet. Mm -hmm. But what it meant to be able to uh, network units uh, with commands, I mean higher commands plus one with another unit. And that work was really more conceptual than it was technical. Today it would be very technical, but we essentially reported that it, it, it sort of changes the game because now the Navy, whether a combatant command, uh, part of a combatant command or the CNO, uh, needed to think about naval operations not as the operations of individual ships or squadrons as such, but any configuration of naval assets, naval surface, subsurface, air. Uh, and the better those communications got uh, in both um, data and, and imagery, uh, the better that opportunity was to be able to operate that way. But it was still very early on, and we all we really did was say, you got to keep this in mind as you think about the architecture of the fleet. We got a little bit ahead of our blocking because we said, you know, you could shift to a very different architecture where you would have a small number of large sort of host ships, maybe carriers, uh, and then um, lots of combatants and non-combatants as part of a hub-and-spoke network. Weren't thinking joint at that point. This was really naval operations. Um, we briefed Vern 
And his response was, it's really important that you brief Mike Mullen, who's about to take over for me, um, which, which we did. But so that was a conceptual piece on the implications of implications of the digital revolution for naval operations and naval cap capabilities. Several of us were asked to look at education in the Navy. Uh, and we focused in particular on postgraduate education. What was true then, it may be, uh, you, you would know as well as anyone, in those days, the opportunity for postgraduate education for an up-and-coming naval officer had some cost associated with, with it because careers tended to be quite rigid. You were going to be a division officer. You were going to go to destroyer school. You are going to be a department head and so on and so forth, then uh, staff duty. And it didn't leave much play for postgraduate education for let's say, a couple years of postgraduate education. So those who wanted to do that uh, needed to figure out how to do that without, without sort of falling off the, the career pipeline, if you will. The Navy did not make it easy. And our recommendation was definitely the Navy needed to make that easy, make it career-enhancing, and um, as evidence, we pointed to the Army and the Air Force. You know, at West Point, um, faculty are, at least at that time, were officers, including many officers, mm -hmm. junior and senior, with graduate degrees. Likewise, at the Air Force, at the Navy, at the Naval Academy, um, junior professors tended to be naval officers and, and senior faculty tended to be civilians, and, and the, the reason for that was that those naval officers really didn't have the opportunity to develop an academic portfolio in addition to their naval career. Is this really the genesis of the permanent military professor uh, program here at the Naval Academy where we have uh, commanders and captains who spend their their yeah. tenure here, if they have a PhD, and then you also have a, a JPMP uh, junior uh, professional military uh, professor, uh, they and they can be a lieutenant commander, and then just mm. uh, continue on here for their twenty. Is, is that where it really started? I would say in spirit. Mm -hmm. We didn't recommend that, but we certainly recommended the Navy think long and hard and open-mindedly about exactly that sort of thing. What kind of granularity did you, uh, or were you able to achieve with regard to research and seeing the career progressions, right. um, and what happens if they go off to Naval Postgraduate School or they uh, take some time, a couple of years uh, on their shore tour, and yeah. they get a master's or a PhD? W did you have access to that kind of information, or uh, were you all just We, we could have, but yeah. we, we did it more anecdotally. Sure. Um, none of us really could afford the time for a cheap sure. research uh, and, and, and numbers crunching. We could have asked the staff to do so. I don't recall whether we did or not. But these anecdotes and the opinions we held on the panel were so, um, uh, were so mutually held 
that we really didn't feel that we needed to get down that far, that the problem was a big problem, and we simply were trying to, we were trying to address mindset rather than the particulars of how many get to go to graduate school and so on. Uh, that was very well received, hmm. very well received. Um, again, I think that probably would have been when Jay Johnson was CNO. I'm going to back up, go back to the networking mm-hmm. issue, uh, if I may. Please. Um, that was uh, early in the, it was early in the George W. Bush administration. And the point we made is that transformation is going to be the name of the game because of the importance of information, the availability of digital technology, and the Navy needs to be out front and creative in thinking about the implications for operations and and for force structure. Then came uh, the Iraq War. Uh, Not the first Gulf War, but Mm -hmm. the second. And that that brought a great deal of the thinking about transformation to a screeching halt. And the Navy entered a period at that stage just because of what was going on in the world and the priorities being set for U.S. forces um, being uh, global war on terrorism, counterinsurgency, and next thing you know, the Navy was being asked to put up officers, some of its best officers, to serve in uh, sort of land-based to F positions, maybe in Iraq, maybe in Afghanistan, to supplement the Army. The Navy saluted, and then Vern came to the Senior's executive panel and asked the question, I mean, don't hold me to the exact mm-hmm. words here, but in essence, okay, fine, we'll provide officers, whatever we're asked to do, but is there something, some role that the Navy should accept uh, to uh, help in a strategic sense deal with vulnerable states, maybe vulnerable Islamic states, uh, um, particularly those uh, who are also maritime, because, you know, at that point, 2003, uh, we, the United States government, considered ourselves to be involved in a global counterinsurgency, mm-hmm. not just specific to Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And the question is, what is the Navy? Real, what's the Navy really going to do about this? And we were asked that question, Dove Zakheim um, and I, he was at that stage not in um, government service, but had plenty of it. Uh, he and I led a group that said, you know, what the Navy can do is, other than sort of providing officers for land staff assignments, the Navy can design uh, teams that can go into countries, maritime countries, particularly in areas that could be under heavy pressure, including um, ideological pressure, um, or face instability, 
but with particular reference to the maritime aspects of that, and the Navy ought to form teams, send them into Liberia, Mozambique, um, Somalia, I mean, lots of places, particularly, certainly the Philippines, though we had a long, long relationship there, which was sort of up and down. Uh, Again, I... I don't recall what specific steps were taken, but that was the way when the Navy was confronted with sort of a new challenge that required a change in thinking about its role. Um, When the first place the CNO turned was to the CNO's executive panel. Uh, Now, I'm sure he turned also Mm -hmm. to the OPNAV staff and all of that, but certainly to the CNO's executive panel for fresh ideas about an issue that was bigger than the Navy, namely the global war on terrorism, as it was called at the time. Um, anyway, that gives you a sense of the, the range of issues that we looked at. Now, following that, did you, is that when you went to Iraq? I had been to Iraq. You'd already been there, yeah. And when I came back, you know, the CNO's executive panel also gave the CNO the opportunity to develop individual relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess mine with Fern Clark and Mike Mullen were, from my perspective, were noteworthy. And Vern and I talked about the implications of the war in Iraq for a transformation, because everybody was all spun up about transformation, and B, What's the Navy going to do in the global war on terrorism? I mean, this is just two very different impulses. So, so I came back from Iraq and had good conversations. I, I don't think I'm telling yeah. uh, stories out of, uh, or, or tales out of school, but I, would, I remember spending some time with, with Vern Clark on exactly those issues. Now, you came back, I mean, you were in Iraq very early on. I mean, this, this is the beginning, 2003, 2004. 2003, 2004. What lessons did you learn for the Navy specifically uh, based on your experience there? Here's where I you know, was certainly independent of U.S. policy, right. as I was supposed to be at the time. Mm-hmm. I had doubts that the global war on terrorism was the appropriate paradigm. It was certainly a problem that we had to face up to. I came from the school at the time that said, this is about finding and eradicating terrorists. Let's do that. I had doubts about the long-term commitments that involved occupation of Muslim countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, for starters. Um, And... A concern that the demand for ground forces, for military operations in counterinsurgency context, or for other counterinsurgency operations like police training, that that demand was going to grow and grow and grow. Um, and, you know, the Navy was going to have to pay the price. Uh, I mean, not just by pro- providing some officers, but that there would be a significant adjustment in the uh, in the defense budget. So I came back from Iraq 
not terribly gung-ho about the global war on terrorism. I could see from Iraq how tough, how tough this was going to be. Um, being involved in the middle of a, of a conflict that we did not completely understand that involved Iran, Shiites, Sunnis, <laughs> and us in a coalition. Um, my concern, which I then expressed, because when I came back, um, in my sort of advisory capacity back at RAND, um, I did express some concern that U.S. strategy and the defense budget was definitely being skewed toward a problem that, uh, for which the Navy did not have a whole lot to offer other than funding. <laughs> and sure enough, that's, that's what happened. Um, so, there you have it. I'd like to turn back to the topic of transformation in the late 1990s and 2000s. Um, this, w would you characterize it as, as largely driven by uh, Secretary Rumsfeld once he uh, came in as SecDef in 2001? Or was this an, another movement that was really DOD-wide that he simply articulated once he arrived? More the latter. What had happened, it just so happens that I had been an executive in the IT industry throughout the 1980s, which was really the revolutionary period in the development of digital technology. And, and I knew from my corporate experience and my technology experience that there was stuff going on that would have enormous importance for the US military, initially in its competition with the Soviet Union, and then beyond that, so um, I was among those, I can't say that I was the leader or even a leader, but I was among those of the view that the US military needed to learn the lessons of transformation of US, corpor of US corporations, for example, uh, other big US entities, NASA, Department of Treasury, that these technologies held such enormous promise, enormous leverage for the U.S. military. Again, this was at the end of the Cold War. My belief was that the Soviets could not compete in these technologies, just couldn't, and it turned out that they didn't, really. So I think, you know, I and others perhaps others smarter than I, had encouraged a way of thinking before Rumsfeld's arrival, Rumsfeld's arrival, that these technologies offered, you know, not only a way to uh, prevail over the Soviet Union, but also to be able to conduct joint power projection in new and exciting ways, as evidenced by the first Gulf War. So the, the, the possibility existed. I mean, throughout, throughout the 90s, it was there. And people were talking about transformation. But it had not been adopted as, a, as the, the banner. And it was early on by Rumsfeld. Uh, he, he understood it. And he decided he was going to lead the charge. Um, 
He was influenced. We're getting a little bit away from the CNO's executive panel, but not that far afield. Mm-hmm. Um, the late, great Andy Marshall also understood this, who was the head of the Office of Net Assessment, and that if the United States had, was moving from a Cold War stance into one in which power projection into critical areas of the world was going to be the, the most important thing. This was before 9-11, mind you, mm-hmm. that in order to do that and do it effectively with relatively low casualties for the U.S. and to do it jointly and to do it with precision um, and advanced communications, it needed to get with these new technologies. And that was beginning to happen but it was never articulated. So mm-hmm. by, by your question was, was, was Rumsfeld the first to articulate it? And I think the answer is yes. And then came 9-11. And then came the invasion of Iraq. And then came the global war on terrorism. And that pretty much uh, put transformation on hold. Nobody quite said that. Mm-hmm. But that's really what happened. Because the re- resources were being shifted away. Resources being shifted toward counterinsurgency operations. You know, this this obviously still ties it was in. At that, back to the CNO's executive panel, yeah. it was really at that point that we were advising particularly Vernon Clark what, what all this means. Transformation, yes, Navy can be a leader. Navy really needs to figure out a way to exploit these technologies all of a sudden, GWAT, and here's what the Navy can do to aid in GWAT, but you got a problem because resources are being diverted to the Army. Now, you had a background in both government and the private sector, one of the advantages to having a CNO's executive panel. And when you're talking transformation, you're in comparing it to from the private sector to DOD or government as a whole, are two completely different kettles of fish. I mean, you, you have, uh, you know, research and development, uh, uh, advanced technology demonstrations, basic research, et cetera, uh, that takes years, if not decades, to develop. You have acquisition programs that literally can take decades right. now. Right. Um, how did, did you all approach this or... How did you see that you might be able to transform given the limitations of the processes right. within the Department of Defense? Yeah, I mean, that's as critical a question today as it was then. But I, that, I was very mindful of that coming out of the corporate world because I saw how corporations would move quite expeditiously and how the technology companies, incidentally, then it wasn't Google and Amazon. It was basically AT&T, IBM, Microsoft. Uh, but they were beginning to move quickly in uh, applying digital technologies to enable organizations to network and transform themselves. And the technologies were supported by enormous research and development budgets. One reason I figured the Soviets couldn't possibly compete is that they they were dwarfed by the by the R&D budget just by AT&T, IBM, Unisys, and Microsoft. But you're, you're absolutely right. By the end of the 1980s, I wasn't even on the panel then, but it was quite obvious that the Defense Department, the military, 
It was going to be a follower. It was going to be a follower. But it was going to take more than cheerleading to get the military into the not only the frame of mind, but the way of organizing and operating that would enable it to keep pace with these technologies, precisely for the reasons you cited, which is uh, because of the importance of uh, competition when you're distributing uh, public funds, uh, the, the regulations that follow from the principle of competition, um, the, the process of, of uh, protesting awards, uh, the difficulty of negotiating contracts, which then became set in stone. All of this was really the opposite of what these technologies needed or what institutions needed to do in order to take full advantage of these technologies, which is why, really, these are gross oversimplifications, even though some of these technologies showed their promise in the first Gulf War, mm -hmm. particularly precision targeting, more advanced communications, more advanced uh, ISR, it really took most of the 90s for the Defense Department to sort of get its institutional head around this. But even then, people talked an awful lot about acquisition reform. They'd been talking about it for, for eons. But uh, nothing much happened. Uh, Rumsfeld commissioned a study on acquisition reform in order to transform. Nothing came of it, in part because global war and terrorism came along. You didn't need to, you didn't need to, well, there was a change in acquisition. Well, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that, didn't that study come out a week or two before 9-11? Yes. And then it just yeah, simply dropped, right, yeah. Right, What happened with global war and terrorism, uh, and, and again, I was just getting deeply involved in the Sino's executive panel at that time was, yes, there needed to be a streamlining of the acquisition process, but it was m much different. It wasn't that the services in embarking on research and development, prototyping and acquiring new technologies and, and follow-ons, that wasn't so much the problem as it was coming up with solutions to what the commanders in the field needed now. So the, the acquisition system was opened up in the sense that the combatant commands were given a voice, um, and, uh, and rightly so, in what they needed now. That's different. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't acquisition reform of the sort of fundamental kind that arguably we still need today which is the subject of a different podcast, probably. <laughs> <laughs> David, I want to get, uh, get back to the transformation. Just offer just one more question. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the data networking, and as the executive panel was meeting, were there other transformative, quote-unquote, topics or platforms or processes that the executive uh, panel was considering or studying? That, that may and in fact and may have been delayed or simply denied as a as a result of of the war on terror. Let's stick with what the war on terrorism required. Required intelligence. 
and I'll have to keep things a bit vague sure, here. Sure, I understand. But, you know, I believe we won the war on terrorism because of our intelligence. Of course, I was in the intelligence community at the time. Why wouldn't I believe that? <laughs> but clearly, intelligence gathering became more critical because we're talking about dispersed and moving targets, namely terrorist cells. And um, <clears throat> extremely important. Uh, overhead, extremely important. Uh, I can't say that the Navy had a big role in human, but certainly when it came to uh, observing and listening, you know, the Navy had a role to play, and, and it did. Uh, maybe not as much as NSA, but still, I, I can recall, again, at a classified level, advising, now it was uh, Gary Ruffhead about things uh, that the Navy ought to be looking at that would enable it to provide the intelligence community with uh, more and better intelligence, particularly related to uh, this sort of global insurgency and the and the global terrorist threat. Mm -hmm. uh, that's about the time that I left, and I can't say, uh, and probably wouldn't say anyway, uh, <laughs> what what that led to. Sure. Well, David, this has been uh, wonderfully informative. I really appreciate uh, your discussing uh, the you know, what the CINO's executive panel was and some of the topics that it, it addressed. Uh, and it's always good to see you. Thank you so much for coming in. Same here, Claude. All right. Bye-bye. And for our listeners, thanks again for joining us on another episode of Preble Hall. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave feedback on whatever platform you're listening to this. Have a great day. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.